0: Today is July the 5th, 2018. This is episode 2244 of the Survival Podcast, 2244. There's that pattern recognition again. Two times two is four, and four is double what two is, and it's 22 and 44. And 22 is double, forty. Uh, 44 is double of 22. Wow, that's just there, right? Cannot not see that if you have... Uh, kind of head that I have on my shoulders that gets obsessed with patterns. Anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it is a Thursday. Uh, it's kind of a weird Thursday uh, with Wednesday off for the 4th of July. I asked you guys uh, what would be best described as is the real uh, American Independence Day, if anybody knew that. One guy emailed me out of Australia, by the way. And said, well, you could make the case that it would be August the 2nd. And the reason you'd make the case August 2nd, that's when it was actually signed. Or you could make the case that it was maybe in November uh, when the king actually got it. I like the date of August 2nd. Now, I think there were some signers that couldn't sign it even by then. But it was pretty much executed as a contract on the 2nd of August. Why do I even know that? More pattern recognition and then just... Well, I'm a little biased toward it. August 2nd is my birthday. So maybe it's not born on the 4th of July. Maybe it's born on August 2nd. Just thought I'd throw that in there for you guys today. Uh, but yeah, we had that day off. And it's weird for me, man, to to have a Wednesday off. I, my wife, I told her today, it is not Thursday in my head. I'm a bit behind. It's about one thirty, and I finally got the recorder going. Usually on a Thursday show, a listener calls. It's a pretty easy show to put together. I'm usually recording by you know ten thirty to eleven thirty at the latest. Uh, so I am off my rhythm, but hopefully we'll have a good show. I do have some good stuff for you today. I have another update on the 10-year anniversary party that is going. The tickets are going to be available on Saturday. I'll save the rest for when we get into the main topic. I have a question on how I developed the TSP business model. Did I always know exactly what the business model was going to be? And in the early days, did self-doubt creep in, and and how would you handle that if it does? Question on planning a steep slope with, quote-unquote, something productive. I have a question on a T for energy and thoughts on energy drinks and the entire concept of getting energy from you know any kind of a stimulant, and, and, and why I think there's something good about that, but there's also a lot wrong with that, and how it really needs to be addressed more holistically, <coughs> excuse me, even in the uh, situation that the caller is in, which is one where one might need a bit of extra energy. Uh, next, um, I have a question on debt consolidation. And I'm going to give the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there ain't a lot of good. I am also going to have to address something in this yet again that is a married couple with split finances. And I'm going to tell you one more time why I don't think that's the right thing to do. I won't tell anybody what to do. I won't even tell anybody what they should do because I don't believe in that. But I'm going to tell you why I think that couples that split their finance split their earning power And they split their power as a couple that should be in a united front on spending, and on debt, and on saving, and on retirement, and on investing, and on making decisions, and on everything else. Um, Next up, how and when do you use third-party arbitration services? I have a question from somebody on this. But the answer is, well, you don't need to be doing that with what your problem is because you don't really have a problem and it's not something you would even use an arbitrator for. But I'll also talk about when you would and what you would versus using the state system. Uh, How you might use aquaponics for seed starting, I have a a few thoughts on that. Uh, That also will be one of those, well, maybe you shouldn't, Uh, but you could and how I would do it. And then the value of working remotely and what you need to make it work for you, uh, to to make it worth doing. Uh and to make sure if you get the opportunity, you don't blow it for yourself. Uh it's something I know a bit about. I spent probably fifty percent of my working life uh not counting T S P working remotely. I guess my work environment now for TSV is very similar to working remotely, except there's no one to bother me about what exactly I'm doing at two o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody checking to see if I'm working or whatever. But I still have the same type of accountability because if I don't do my job, the show doesn't go out, the stuff doesn't get done, and then I don't make any money. So, uh, while I can't get fired, I can fail in business. So it is the same type of accountability, just done a different way. Uh, but a boss may not be logical where the market always is. So, I have a really great diverse group of calls for you guys today. Remember, if you want to call in a question like this, there's two ways to do it. One, you pick your phone up and you dial 8665 think, 86665 T H I N K, the think line. Uh, leave me your question. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact, and then in the contact field or on the contact page, you will see a, a button for the speak pipe. And you can click that button and uh, leave me a message. It will come to me through the magic of the interwebs. Remember, it is a pre recorded show, so it's a pre recorded call. The formula to follow to get on the air is ask your question or make your point and do that in one sentence. I promise you, you can. I promise you, you can. And then once you do that, and we will both be sure of what your question is, then give me the details that you feel are necessary, and I will be able to do a better job of screening your call. I will be a better, to be able to do a better job of answering your question because I'll know what it is and you will be far more likely to get on the air. Uh, with that, before we do get to your calls today, let's take a look at the year from history for the, today's episode. And the year in history this year is one, the year 144 AD. And as we have been doing, uh, we're sticking into the, uh, Roman Empire today. Today's segment from David Verne is the beatings will continue until learning improves, not morale, right? Education in the empire was confined to the rich and middle class who could afford to pay for tutors, but considering the problems with the system, the poor might have been better off. Education started around the age of seven. Boys would go to a group learning sessions with a tutor. Frequently, this would be a Greek slave. The girls would be taught at home how to run a household, keeping accounts, and playing music. In the group learning sessions, students learned reading, writing, and arithmetic and would start out by memorizing the names of the letters before being shown what the letters looked like or what they were for. After memorizing the letters, they would be shown what the letters looked like and had to copy them perfectly with no previous instruction on how to write. Math was the same way with lessons that were memorized to the point that students didn't have to think hard to get a good lesson. Uh, after five years, students would begin secondary education, with inc- which included only grammar. The subjects were taught from the rigid canon of writers. The Romans didn't care about the actual content of a speech or poem. Much more emphasis was placed on the order that the words were written, and the lessons consisted of switching the words around in sentences. The final step, only to open, only open to the extremely wealthy, was of course rhetoric. Tutors would teach the students how to debate. But emphasis was placed on who could deliver the best speech while the actual content was ignored. Any mistakes students made were punished by harsh beatings, which continued until the student got the lesson right. Romans didn't care about why the lessons were right, only that they were. Lessons continued from sunrise to sunset with no weekends, uh, and only a day off about every eight days for religious holidays. Science, advanced math, economics, and music were ignored. And seen as not necessary, Romans who did well in their lives generally did so despite the best efforts of the education system to break them. The future emperor, Marcus Aurelius, contribu- contribu- con- con- uh, contributed his success uh, to his guardians, keeping him out of the education system and homeschooling him instead. Hmm. Even though I, And this is my take by David Verne on all this. Even though I consider the Roman model of education to be even worse than our modern system... I have found people that think it's better. Their argument is that while it might be boring, at least the students actually learn the information. I disagree and don't think students learn anything better than we do now. If someone is forced to mindlessly memorize something for years, they aren't going to care about it. And just remember the information as long as they have to before they can move on with their lives. Uh, Actually, harsh beatings aside, I see it almost exactly like our current education system. You're forced to memorize things with less concern about the content of the information rather than your ability to regurgitate it. And you're punished if you get it wrong. And most people will only remember what they have to as long as they have to to get through the system. And then most people will be successful in their lives independent of what they actually learned other than just being able to read and write and understand basic mathematics. Um, and you might think, well, the harsh beatings is... Uh, well, at least that's long gone. It ain't as gone as you think it is. It ain't as long gone, I should say. When I was in, like, first grade, um, we had a teacher... And this is before they put me in Catholic school, and I managed to get myself kicked out. We had a teacher in public school that hit kids with a freaking yardstick for getting things wrong on papers, including things like, well, you forgot to put your name on your paper. Now... This lady never hit me. I did go tell my dad that she was doing this, and he had a conversation with her that I didn't get to hear, but I imagine it was quite stern that involved something along the lines of what you do to my child, to do to you. And my dad wasn't one that was totally opposed to something like corporal punishment, but uh, I think being hit because you got an answer wrong was beyond what he was willing to let happen to his children. This was actually pretty common in the school district uh, in North Florida, that I attended at this time, this would have been around 1979-1980. So that's not exactly that long gone now, is it? Now, where, the, how long that went on for, et cetera, where else this happened, I don't know. But so, but I would say that it doesn't even matter because today the harsh beatings are uh, emotional beatings. Uh, today we take a standardized test and we frightened children with it throughout the year. My son, who was almost a straight-A student, B or, B, B or two here and there, um, I remember him being terrified of this damn stupid standardized test, and it took him until about high school. By the time he got to high school, he had taken it up and we realized, okay, first of all, if you can't pass that test, you're you're not very smart. And second of all, it, it doesn't really matter, and it really ain't going to affect whether or not I'm going to go on to the next grade or not, because even though he always passed them with flying colors, he saw plenty of his friends uh, that maybe didn't get what they would consider a pass, and they just went right along through school anyway. So there's a lot of different ways that we use beatings in our schools. They don't always have to be physical. Um there is the core of the trivium in this, and I think making the, the trivium the core of an educational system, uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric is a great idea, uh, but you can have a great idea and execute it poorly. sounds like it was here. sounds like it is in the modern day. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's get into uh, the main stuff today. I want to start out with an update on the 10-year anniversary party. So... To, to rehash how this is going to go, Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, that would be 10 a.m. Eastern, and that would be 8 a.m. Uh, Mountain, and that would be 7 a.m. Pacific, which means if you live on the left coast, you've got to get up earlier if you want to try to get to come. Uh, when I set this party up, I thought that it would be something that you know we'd have maybe 50 people at, and they'd all come locally. I've been contacted by people all over Dagdon country that are to come down for a three- or four-hour party. So uh, I'm trying to be more inclusive here. So here's what we've done. Uh, the place, again, that we have reserved is called Meso Maya. It's a really cool restaurant. Dorothy and I are just in love with the place. They have an upstairs room with a bar that easily can accommodate 100 people. We will have our own private wait staff and private bar staff for this. We are going to... Stick with the number of fifty for people that we're letting come for no cost. Those fifty people were basically paying for food for you guys. We have a really cool appetizer assortment that's going to be available. That's basically going to make a meal. If you want more food, you can order it. But based on the the quantity and everything that's there and how many there are, basically you're not going to be hungry. Uh, again, if you want more food, you can order it. It's on you if you do that. The second fifty. We'll have to pay 25 bucks to come. We'll have you just simply when you show up give Dorothy 25 bucks in cash. Or if you're a couple, 50 bucks in cash. We're not going to take payment online. You don't need to send it in advance. It doesn't work like that. Um, if I didn't trust people, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I have, if I have one or two people that hose me on this, it ain't gonna change the temperature water in my pool. And then I just know those people are not to be trusted in the future. I've found that trusting people is a great way to find out who you can trust, especially with small things. Uh, people you can't trust with small things, never trust them with big things. So how this is going to work is I'm going to put a form online that you fill out your name, your email, and your cell phone number. And I'm going to put a link in the MSB because it's going to be – I don't think anybody outside the MSB is going to get in on this. I really don't. Um, I could be wrong, uh, you know, by raising it to hundred. But basically, I'm on a Saturday. It's for MSB only. And if there's anything left on Sunday, I'll I'll make it available to anybody. I figure people that wouldn't buy a five dollar monthly membership for one month to do this don't really want to come. Those second people, again, from number fifty-one through one hundred, will have to uh, to pay twenty-five bucks because I have to cover the food and I have to cover some other things that we're doing. So that was how we were able to expand it without. Going too far in the hole on this thing I really didn't want to make it a gift Now on the gift thing, some stuff we put out on Facebook The last couple of days that I think you you might Really think are kind of cool um, We came up with this idea to do shot glasses um, My wife and I Were in Florida, we found these really cool hard rubber Like silicon shot glasses And we bought one from a place called DocForce, we liked it We looked at doing printing on them and it just didn't look that great And there wasn't a lot of sources to do it And it was kind of expensive And we found these stainless steel Two and a half ounce shot glasses and, uh, there's a mock-up of them on the website and the post I did about this today online. And it's got the, um, the, 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 the design we used for the copper coins with the val head and the star and, the, all that good stuff. And the, the honor, courage, strength, and knowledge, uh, going around the reef and survival podcast. And it says, be an ant, not a grasshopper, which goes way back to the genesis of this show. And a couple, six little cool ants on that side. And then the back of the cup has an X, like a Roman numeral 10 with TSP embedded in it. It says established 2008, 10 years of living a better life. Uh, Those cups, I'm giving everybody, uh, paid or free, coming to the, the, the party, one of those for free. And I got a dozen flasks so it's kind of a combination of that design that I'm, I mocked up today myself. I ordered a dozen of those. Probably going to give like eight of those out, maybe ten. I don't know yet. There might be some people that are going to be there that might be just gifted one as a thank you for the support over the years and, and contributions to the community. Some of them I'm just going to give out as uh, door prizes, I guess. We'll probably come up with some kind of ticket system uh, where you come in, you get a couple, you know, you get a ticket, and we'll do a drawing. I'm going to try to put some other stuff together that we'll be able to give away. To make this fun, Uh, John Pugliano will be there and some other special guests will be there as well. Uh, We won't be doing any kind of presentations or anything like that, other than, you know, we might, hey, everybody, we're going to draw another ticket or something like that. I might speak a few words, uh, might let people speak a few words here and there, but uh, this is just going to be fun. Uh, and it's going to be 100 of the coolest people you could ever get around. That, that's what it's going to be. Uh, again, the tickets go up for availability on Saturday. Uh, I may let the form stay up till it's like 110, 120, in case anybody falls out so that you can, we can offer up their positions. After you fill out a form, you'll know real quick whether you got in or not because your form worked. Uh, but we'll get in touch with you by email and text if we have to. Uh, if your email we don't get here back from you to make sure everybody RSVPs, uh, and uh, we just appreciate it if you get a spot and for some reason you can't come, you let us know so we can make it available to someone else. That's it. Hope you guys enjoy it. And again, one more time because my wife keeps worried about this. Yeah, we are providing food. Um, if you're paying or not paying, you're getting food. Uh, we are not providing like an open bar or anything. You buy your own drinks. All right. So, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first call today. Uh, I got a question on the TSP business model and dealing with something we know as self doubt. Hey, Jack, it's David from Connecticut. Uh, just had a question for you. When you started TSP, did you already know what your business model was going to be, or was that something that came later? I also was wondering if uh, self-doubt was ever something that tried to creep into your gut, and if so, how did you deal with those feelings? Uh, I know you have probably covered this before, but was just curious to to hear your take on it. Thanks so much for everything you do. So this is actually a really great question. David, you may not even realize in asking it how great a question is or why it's so great. I have heard so many people over the years say, "I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to blah 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 blah," and not get shit done. And they spend an awful lot of time trying to answer questions that you do not need to answer in the beginning. How, what is my business model going to be? There are people that feel, and there are people with with uh, MBAs, they would tell you, "You need to know what your business model is if you're going to start a business." In some instances, they're right. If you're going to start breaking ground and building a damn building, you better know what your business model is. If you're going to go into the world of content creation, your success, whatever it may be, will begin to dictate to you what your business model should be. The truth is, when I started TSP, I did it to figure out how to do a podcast for a client that we had as a design client. I had a customer, he wanted a blog, he wanted a podcast, he wanted all this stuff. And I went out and bid the job and got the job and then took it to my developer. And he said, well, I don't know how to set up podcast feeds or stuff like that. It turned out to be really easy. But I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out and you just build the blog and don't worry about it. And I'll take care of that side of it. So I started doing the show in my car on June the 20th, 2008. And it was in my head anyway that I wanted to do this. And it was an excuse to do it. And within a week, I said, this is going to be what I do for the rest of my life. I knew that this was what I was going to do. There were like a dozen listeners at the end of that week, 12. uh, and, and, And probably six of them were me subscribed from various different ways to make sure it worked. So there's maybe five or six people that had listened to an episode after about a week or two. But I already knew this was going to be what I did for the rest of my life. The audio was terrible. I mean, even though the audio in the car got better at the beginning, the audio was awful. Uh, But I knew this is what I want to do. And I knew that my entire life had led me to a point to do this show and to do it well. Uh, I spent a lot of my life in technology sales doing things like standing in front of anything from a couple dozen to several hundred to even almost a thousand people at seminars and workshops talking about things like testing cables. Yeah, testing cable. Here's a cable tester. This is what near-end crosstalk is. Uh, If you can make that interesting... And you better, or people fall asleep and leave, uh, and then you just don't get asked to do stuff like that anymore, and you lose the opportunity, then you can certainly make things like living a better life entertaining. Uh, I had an incredible, diverse knowledge of technology and sales and business, and, um, a lot, and then a, a core knowledge of all the types of, uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, uh, growing your own food. That was all just part of who I was. So I knew it was what I wanted to do. But I did not know what my business model was. I knew that I had tried to find some podcasts like what I was going to build, and there weren't any, and that was an opportunity. And so I went to work, and my first six months of the show was built on one thing. There was one agenda. Make it successful. With no concern whatsoever for money. Because my, my expense in doing this was a $30 recorder, a $20 headset, and web hosting that I was paying about $12 a month for in a domain name. That was it. And I spent some money. I, I paid out of pocket to my own designer that worked for my company to do some of the basic initial design for me so that it wasn't in any way uh, unfair to the company that I was running. And uh, you know, so it was a few hundred bucks there. So all in all, you know, over the first six months, I got like $500 or less into this. So I don't care about my business model. I care about my content model and perfecting that and developing a following. And then I'll figure out how to monetize it. And then it just became a very evident thing that it would make sense to do both sponsorships and do a membership program. When I sold out the sponsorships really fast and there were people that still wanted in the door, the concept of setting up a discount program just sort of fell in my lap. Then I took those ideas and I executed them well. That's it. And that sounds maybe too simple, but the reality is the concept of I am going to build a following before I make determinations about what my revenue model will be is what made it simple. I let the audience... Through their actions, define for me what would be best, and it wasn't a hundred percent well received. When I first started taking commercial uh, content onto the show, I had people threatening to not listen anymore. Well, I told them to go screw. Like, do you, you think I'm going to provide this to you, you know, five days a week, Monday through Friday, uh, and not make a dollar off of it? So, and I, I think. That was only a very small group of people, and hopefully they did go screw, and hopefully a couple of them maybe uh, realized they were being very demanding and expecting a man to to dedicate hours a day to them for no compensation. And then when I came out with the member program, I had some people really pissed off about that, but I think many of them thought that I was going to start charging for the podcast. And when they realized, like, if you shut your arrogant hole long enough to actually understand what's being said, no one's taking anything from you. I'm providing something additional that you can choose to participate in. There were a few people very unhappy about that anyway, and I think those people were probably takers who felt bad that they would never participate. Well, the majority of listeners never participate in the MSB. Uh, I would say about 10% of the total audience uh, becomes a paying member uh, at some point. It's probably more like 20%... At some point become a paying member and it's about ten percent that retain long term and stay members and that's a fine business model for me I set no goals or agendas as to what those percentages would be uh, I let them be what they were worked on increasing my conversion and building enough value in the program that people wanted to stay and I think there's a big lesson there and you might think, well, now that you've done it, if I'm going to start a podcast, why don't I just do exactly what you're doing? You might, but you shouldn't start out with that in mind. You should start out with, with a mindset of, I am going to be the best podcast that I can be in my space. I'm going to set frequencies. It's either weekly or daily, in my opinion, or maybe three times a week if you want to do like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday show. But whatever that frequency is, I'm going to make that commitment, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to put that content out, and I'm going to let an organic component of this thing develop. Had I tried to force a business model on it, I don't think people from Appleseed would have gotten disc, uh, decals from people who printed them up at their own expense and made them available at cost uh, and, and then got those decals and put them on the rack rifles at Appleseed Shoots, for example. I don't think people would have emailed me and said, hey, can I, make, can I make CDs of your stuff and give it out? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, back then people used CDs, right? Uh, it, it, all of that happened because I didn't try to control the community I was building. And it was one of the first times I was wise enough to do what I was always advising clients to do, and clients never wanted to do. I let go of control. I'm like, I want to do viral marketing, but I want to be in control of it. Well, I don't think you understand what viral marketing is at all. And because of that approach, and because I've stuck with that approach, TSP is not a community. It is a it is an all-encompassing community of sub-communities now. There are communities within TSP that have their complete own identity, like the Zello group, like the forum, like the Facebook pages and uh, meetup groups and things like that, and it was by letting go that that happened. But to be able to let go, you had to have something valuable so that you could have something to let go of, which was control of how this whole thing would grow. So I had to start it. I had to give birth to it. So I would recommend that you get out and get busy and build whatever the hell it is you want to build. And if... Going with a revenue model right away works, and you can figure something out. Do it. And I'm not opposed to that. What I'm opposed to is letting all your concerns about that inhibit your ability to actually roll out content and get going. My niece is about to start a blog. She has tons of stuff written, but nothing on the blog. Her blog will be a failure. I'm say, I'm, I'm 95% she will fail with her blog for not Trying, Not because she's not capable. I think she's incredibly capable. The niche she wants to go into is an incredibly awesome niche. She could be one of the next biggest bloggers in the country with a following that would make mine look tiny if she'll execute. But when you have content but you're not ready to use it yet because you're not sure, it's just a recipe for the typical thing where somebody puts out eventually a couple blogs that are pretty good Somebody looks at them here and there, but six months later, they have a blog post that says, I know I haven't been posting as much as I should, and it's just a huge mistake. Get out and make shit happen. That, that's what to do. Self-doubt. I've dealt with self-doubt in my life. I did not deal with self-doubt when it came to TSP. I think part of that was absolutely knowing in my bones, this is what I want to do. Uh, Another part of it was, you know, I'd been in business for almost 20 years, and and nothing breeds confidence like success. But I'd learned something in sales that a mentor named Forrest Baker uh, taught me. And Forrest would be one of those mentors that you only have two or three conversations in your life with. They're very, very brief, but they all stick with you forever. And what he said is in sales, Jack, you get very, very excited over little piddly things that really aren't that big a deal. And that's fine. But you also get very depressed over little piddly things that aren't that big of a deal. The key to success is maintaining the excitement and pushing back the depression or the things that bother you. Because there's always something out there, no matter how small, to be excited about. And if you focus on those and you stay excited, that breeds action, and then action breeds success, and success breeds confidence. Well, that's kind of the secret to success in business. As long as we're not lying to ourselves, these little piddly things that make us excited, if the business is going broke, we need to take corrective action. But especially in the beginning when the business can't go broke because it's a content development business and you ain't got enough money into it for it to go broke, you're just trying to get it off the ground. All you need to pay attention is to, I got one more subscriber today. Somebody made a comment. I'm telling you in the beginning, when somebody made a comment, I got excited. When somebody gave me a review on iTunes, I got excited even when it was negative. You listened, and you cared enough to say something about it. And, and today, if I get a comment, it's like, I got a comment, right? If I get a comment to post on Facebook, yeah, I got a comment. Uh, yeah. But in the beginning, you need to be excited for everything that you can consider a success and learn from it and listen to the feedback that you get. Now your haters and stuff like that screw that. You don't have time for that. Delete, ban, move on, right? But when somebody says something like, you know, your audio would be better if you might even say for right now this is what I can do, but you still kind of put that in, you know, your to-dos or or what have you. If you're doing video content, your lighting could be better if if that person's genuinely making a suggestion, At least look at the possibility that they may be able to help you or that you may be able to help yourself by doing something with it. You do that, and I'm telling you, you will figure out. When there's a couple thousand people or more paying attention to you, you'll figure out what your business model is. You'll start having common requests. I wish you had. Can you provide? When one person asks for something, don't run out and do it if it's expensive. You know, I, we need T-shirts, and you go print out ten thousand dollars worth of T-shirts and sell fifty bucks worth. Don't don't do that crap. You know, any print-on-demand or whatever. Prove a product with print-on-demand before you. So that's a separate thing there. Um, but when you have common requests, if you can figure out how to monetize those, then your audience is telling you, "We will spend our money with you this way if you provide us this." And I am a huge believer in non-material product, service-oriented product. Software, basically. If you think about what MSB is, it really is a software-style product. It costs me no more to deliver my product to a 1,000 people or 10,000 people, where every physical product has a, an associated burden as we increase the number of customers. So those are my thoughts in general. Get out and make it happen. Let's take another one, this one on uh, planning on a steep slope.
1: Hey, Jack, this is CJ from Pennsylvania. Uh, question is, I have a very steep slope that I wanted to grow something productive on, so I don't have to mow. Uh Background is, um, I got this slope along the front side of my property next to the road. Um, it's roughly about 130 feet long, um, about six feet tall. And one end, you're talking about a 60-degree slope. The other end probably gets closer to 70. It's pretty steep. I wanted to grow something on this thing that's, you know, productive, you know, some kind of ROI on it. Um, You know, so I don't have to mow and, you know, wanted to make it look good for the wife. So that's it. I appreciate your time. Thanks for everything you do, man. Have a good one.
0: Okay, so you know when he started the question, I was thinking of like this big giant slope, you know, and, and the answer to that is always trees because trees are the easiest thing to grow on a steep slope. They're the best thing you can do to stabilize it, uh, and, and they generally make the most sense. In this instance, you could do a line of trees specifically along the top, and if you had any kind of a, a, a you know something that falls. Uh, it would roll down the hill and be easy to pick up, but it doesn't sound like what you want to do. So you got to figure out what you really want here when you say something productive, and, and I'm not sure uh, what that is for you. I mean, the easy answer would be, it sounds like it's got solar aspect is pretty heavy, and you're in Pennsylvania and stuff just like in your growing season, Zone 6 is one of the best growing seasons. You have this Darth of winter, but when it comes on and spring hits, boom. I mean, everything's green and... You know, you seldom get what we would call a drought. What you guys call a drought, it isn't really a drought. It's two weeks without rain, um, and because of that, you know, you don't have to cut the grass as as, as long in the year uh, as people in Texas do. But uh, when you do, you got to cut it more frequently, and you got to deal with this uh, you know, 150 foot long, six foot high berm basically so it's it's a short distance 60 degrees six foot high so you're going six foot up uh you're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten feet of of surface that you got there uh you could simply really heavily seed it with clover and water that clover in um And the clover will kind of take over. White Dutch clover and New Zealand white clover, both in Pennsylvania, does really well. And then you'd have a bee crop, even if you don't personally want bees. That's very productive. It brings tons of pollinating insects in. It won't eliminate your need to mow, but it will drastically reduce it. You can let white clover get really high. It's only ever going to get so high. And over time, if you encourage it, it will choke out most of the grass. So that would be one way to handle it. Another way, if you wanted something from a standpoint of like something you could pick and eat, uh, another thing that does beautiful in your climate is your cane fruits, blackberries, raspberries, etc. If I was going to do this, uh, and I'd have to actually see the site to be sure, so you have to modify what I'm going to say right now. But I would do something like get a hold of, borrow, because it's not worth buying this for this one application. But I would get a hold of, buy, borrow, beg uh, temporarily, um, a tiller. And I'm talking about a walk-behind, like DR, tiller type tiller uh and i would probably mark out using something simple like an a-frame level about midway up this slope contour line and i'm not going to make it's going to kind of look like a swell but it's really a footpath uh uh terrace and i would run that uh, tiller along that line back and forth maybe two times and then i would set it you know and maybe make a double cut with it to make, you know, something like along lines of like a two-foot flat path. And I would clean that out with a hoe and make a downgrade berm like a mini swale. And I would get that planted very, very quickly uh, with something that's going to hold it together. Uh, again, clover would be a great bet to get that stuff in. And then I would plant my cane fruits above and below that path and what that should allow you to do then is be able between standing on the top of it and picking down and standing on the bottom picking up and standing on that path and picking up and down you should be able to work with maintain deal with all of that cane fruit uh, fairly easily and you won't have to, you know, be standing on a steep slope while you're trying to do it. Because that's the problem. Like any kind of gardening or anything here, you're going to deal with, you know, even if you you make a garden out of it, you're going to have erosion. But if you got rid of the erosion problem, it's a pain in the butt. And if you did a cane fruit like I'm talking about here, well, you're going to have a really large harvest off that Right now, being wasted land, and it's going to be thick enough and aggressive enough and, and spread with, with runners that eventually it's going to choke everything else out. Now, you're going to have a lot of pruning to do every year. I would probably go with the Primacane variety. Uh, there's floricane and Primacane varieties of your, your cane fruits available now, and a Primacane fruits on first year canes. Uh, it makes, and you can do them without a trellis. And you can basically just tip back your, your growth each year and, and then next year just prune it out and let your next succession come up. Or you can cut them right to the ground after the first time they fruit, they'll grow back and then fruit the next year on that cane for you again. Either way, you can look into more on those. Uh, so that would be a, a good thing you could do. Uh, another And again, I don't know, do you want to create a screen here? If it was too tall a growth, would it be a problem? You know, something like autumn olive, all along the top side, and then something that grows a little bit shorter on the bottom side of that path would be another way. You know, something like that. That's kind of what I'm seeing. If, if you, if this doesn't make sense or doesn't work for you, if you can get me a little more information about where your head is with this, I'll try to do some follow-up on it for you. But those are just some of the ways I might come at this. Um, I, I really can't think of much in the way of what would do really well there for you. It's going to be easy to harvest, Uh, from any kind of vegetative crop, even something that's going to be really aggressive and eliminate your issues with the grass, like Jerusalem artichoke. God, harvesting that would just be a nightmare. Another thing you could do is turn it into more of a wildflower mix, wildflower mix, clover and wildflowers, uh, with things like poppies and other wildflowers that do well in your climate. Um, Any kind of a spreading ground cover, uh, and then taking account the solar aspect as well. You know, if it's really shaded area, you throw English ivy in there and call it a day. Uh, otherwise, you're going look at other ground covers and make sure they're perennial in your climate and your zone. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on needing energy because of long work days.
1: Hi, Jack. Aaron from
2: upstate New York here. Question. I am looking for energy tea that is good cold. Details. I am working 16-hour days and I'm popping two to three energy drinks a day to stay functional. I'm looking for a tea that I could drink throughout the day. I'm also drinking a gallon of water throughout the day as well, something that we can mix the two together. I know ginseng is good for that. Thanks for all that you do. Have a great day. Enjoy.
0: Oh, dear God, I remember 16-hour days, and they suck. Um, So, in general, energy drinks, teas, etc., that that are helpful in keeping you awake when you're working like this, use stimulants. Uh, that stimulant can be something like caffeine. You mentioned ginseng, and ginseng does a lot of really great things, but also in enough quantity it becomes a stimulant. A lot of times they use B12 uh, and other B vitamins and isin, et cetera. Those can help stimulate us a little bit, and they are mood-enhancing. B12 is known as a happy shot. Um, the oral B12 and things like that, generally really heavily av- absorbable, though, um, what happens with older people, and the reason they call it a happy shot, is we get most of our B12 actually through dietary things, specifically um, with with meats and, and, and things like that. A lot of the B12 vitamins people take orally, they don't get a good absorption rate uh, from them. That's why they have such high amounts of them to get any. And our ability to absorb that B12 as we age actually declines. And that's why you get a lot of the elderly, even if their diet, and their diet usually suffers because they're not as hungry, they don't eat as much, et cetera. Uh, But even if they have a relatively good diet, they can develop something called pernicious anemia. Of course, anemia generally we think of as an iron deficiency, but pernicious anemia is a deficiency in B12. And when we take those people and give them a B12 shot, they go from kind of being miserable and unhappy and things like that to being very, very happy. Uh, and it's not that they're very, very happy. It's that they're normal again, and it makes you happy when you're normal. So B12 niacin uh, and stimulants like uh, some of the herbal stimulants and, and caffeine, et cetera, are what people are really relying on. Now, here's the problem with that. If we keep using stimulants in the body, we begin to overstimulate ourselves. It's not good for our health. Eventually, we can create rebound effects. We can actually cause ourselves to be tired, uh, or we can create headaches, we can create anxiety, we can create shaking. Uh, everybody's seen the guy that's that's working code or something like that, uh, that's on his 75th cup of coffee to the day, and he's alert, and he's working, but his fingers and hands are just trembling. Uh, and that's just not a good way to live long term. So I'm going to encourage you, even though I'll give you some ideas, to try to go beyond stimulation from anything, whether it's natural or man-made, is your sole source of of dealing with this workload that you have. Um, From a tea standpoint, uh, green tea is a reduced caffeine, but it has caffeine. And black tea has caffeine, and it's less than uh, coffee. So we can have that mild stimulation. And I think both of those are good things to look at. In my opinion, both green tea uh, and black tea is, is fine cold. Uh, it's one of the reasons I actually try to drink more tea than coffee. It's not just to reduce caffeine, but when I forget about my cup of, of, of coffee and it becomes cold, uh, and I microwave it, it doesn't taste so good and cold. I don't really like coffee cold, but when my, when my, uh, like I had a, a cup of, uh, Earl Grey today and when it sits on the, and I forgot about it, it, sat on the desk and when I pick it up and it tastes cold, it still tastes good. I like using them as a, uh, a blend to go with certain herbs. And some of, one of the herbs, that, it, it's really a unique thing that, that peppermint can do this. It can make us feel stimulated and awake, and it can help us go to sleep. Uh, because it's not a stimulant or a depressant. It, it is a, a, a mood enhancer. So if our mood is enhanced and we're trying to stay awake, we generally feel a little bit more awake. And if our mood is enhanced and we are restful and re- 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 wanting to go to sleep, generally we have a little bit more success with that. So uh, a mint and uh, green tea or a mint and black tea blended be kind of where I would start you out. Um, and, and I really am going gonna, gonna to avoid getting into the herbs that are stimulants in this situation because it's ongoing... And it can become chronic, and that's generally, I think, not very healthy. So I would stick to something like that. I would also make sure that you are getting a good, uh, a good amount of vitamins and minerals, uh, minimum the RDA times two, recommended daily alliance times two, <coughs> that you be on a good vitamin and mineral supplement that is highly absorbable, uh, that uses, uh, when it comes to minerals, chelated forms of minerals, Uh, because you're probably, if you're working like that, you're not eating right. And I'm going to suggest you really try to eat right, but you're probably not going to be able to do it, especially every day. I've been there. I know. I understand. Try to break your meals into small amounts and eat a lot more frequently and a lot less each time. No matter how much you feel you need to get more done, when it's time to eat something, when it's time for a snack, two things. Don't eat and work. Two, don't inhale the food. You know, if you're going to eat a a couple handfuls of cashews or some other nut or something like that, a little handful of beef jerky, take a break. Eat one piece at a time. Chew your food slowly. Masticate it well so it's fully absorbable. Swallow it. Have a sip of water, sip of tea, what have you. And that alone will cause frequent breaks from your work you will get more done if you do this so the while you'll actually take some time from your work your productivity will go up take breaks teach yourself some breathing exercises that you're comfortable with if nothing else set a timer and every so whatever the frequency is maybe 4 times 3 times an hour stop stop alarm goes off stop If you need to make a note so you know where your head was when that happened, make that note. Stand up. Breathe in and out five times and count your breaths really slowly. In one, out, two. Full. Get oxygen to the brain. And just do that. Walk around a little bit. Stretch. Go back to work. That'll often do more to help keep you energized and alert than shocking your body with stimulants. And if you're doing physical labor, then th- then you really want to when you take that break not do a lot of movement other than maybe a stretch, a stand, or a sit down and breathe type thing. What we're talking about is m- uh, micro meditation, and and one of the things that I'll, I thought, I don't think people really understand how powerful. Uh, This type of thing. It's not about contemplating your navel and your place in the universe. And can you feel the leaves in the distant tree as they sway back and forth as though they're the hair on your arms or something like that? What we're talking about is a mindful, brief meditation. If we do five breaths slowly, maybe each breath, you know, each side of the breath takes us five seconds. So it's ten seconds to complete a breath. We're talking about 50 seconds. We're still under a minute. But in that 50 seconds, simply by counting our breath and paying attention to our breath, we're pulling our head into ourselves, and not in some nihilistic way, not in some kind of uh, egotistical way focusing on ourselves. What we're, we're focusing on controlling something that we have control of, our breathing, but we never think about it, our breathing. And this kind of reboots the mind. It's kind of like when that computer is kind of running slow, and you, 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 you God, I'm trying to get this done, and you know you should save your work, Restarted, and it just kind of clears out the random access memory and everything just works better after a reboot that's what you're doing when you take that time and you give yourself that time and you know if you're working 16 hours a day every day see if you can figure out how not to I mean there's a point in your life where you gotta do it you know my son's there right now he's got a big opportunity I don't know if it's 16 hours but he's working hard than he's ever worked in his life and, and, and you got to do it. You know, and he's got a promotion, but he's also still doing his old job sometimes to cover. And that's a credible opportunity. And you got to make it happen. He's working at a desk and he's working out in the field at the same time, you know. And, and if that's what you're doing, then you got to power through it. But you also need an end game. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we working 16 hours? If it's not leading us somewhere, then we need to reevaluate what we're doing as well. Because if it's an endless cycle that doesn't lead to a shift that's better for us and our family, then all we're doing is being used by whoever's pushing us this way. If we're building a business or we're building a career with this, then we also need to say to ourselves, well, what's my timeline on being willing to do this? We can't do this for the rest of our lives. And where's my breaking point where I'm going to take a break from this cycle for a significant period of time, meaning several days to a week? I'm just not going to do this. And I know sometimes you have to, and I'm not saying to ruin your career by forcing that in there, but at some point we got to have that come-of-Jesus meeting with ourselves. Tea, again, I'm going to go back, and actually tea is one of what I have. I have a gunpowder green for the item of the day, uh, and I'll talk about some things you can do with that when we get to item of the day today. You can uh, put in there. But uh, mint uh, blended with uh, green or black tea would be my starting point. And then you can look at some other things that... that, that can be somewhat stimulating and if you just put in you know, stimulating herbs and then look for the ones that are stimulating because of how they make you feel emotionally versus having an actual stimulant in them that's why I'm recommending mint and try working with those first and let that bit of caffeine that's in there be there for you because if you're drinking that tea throughout the day that's it's, it's a, quite a bit of caffeine in small amounts almost like a time release kudos on the water Make sure you keep doing that. You know, make sure you keep doing that. If nothing else, if you're drinking that much tea and that much water, you're having to take a lot of pee breaks. When you take a pee break, you come back to your desk, do some breathing. When you're peeing, don't breathe like that, you know. <laughs> Let's make the breath about just being itself or find some sort of mental exercise that can be done in a minute. Uh, look at different breathing exercises. Find one that works for you. If you're surrounded by a lot of people who think it's weird, find something you can do uh, without it. Uh, some other things that I've always done in office environments, including working at home, you know, throw a couple golf balls under your desk. Kick your shoes off, and every once in a while, take your foot and use that golf ball to massage your, sh- your foot. Uh, this is a form of acupressure, and it also does help you stand up, stretch, those types of things. They'll go a lot better for you than putting a lot of powerful herbs and stimulants into your system at helping you deal with this situation. But you gotta take time for the short and the long reboots in this or you're gonna wear yourself out. Let's take another one.
3: Hi Jack, long time listener here since about episode 43 or so. And I have a question concerning debt consolidation. Details. Uh, my wife and I keep separate finances and it turns out she's, uh, had some health issues and whatnot that have led to funds not always being available and her running up some uh, debt on, what, four different credit cards, dear? Four different credit cards, uh, three of which I think are store cards uh, and and loans, and that's across about uh, $18,000, I believe she figured out was the total. And then we also have uh, her car outstanding at uh, about $25,000, I believe, uh, and she was actually just recently looking into uh debt consolidation, and we really don't know a whole lot about it. And I was wondering if uh you or one of the expert council members could give us some insight into that and whether it's something worth looking into further. Thanks for all you do. Bye.
0: All right. So let's start out with just the concept of debt consolidation and why I'm not a fan of it. What debt consolidation simply means you have four bills, five bills, two bills, whatever. you got more than one. And a debt consolidation company says, what we're going to do is reduce your monthly payment. So we're going to take all these bills and put them together, and then we're going to come up with an interest rate that sounds fair, and we're going to extend the duration of the loan to where it's a long enough repayment period that your payment is going to go down significantly, so this sounds great. An example might be having two loans for $10,000, uh, one on a two-year note and one on a four-year note, and so you owe $20,000, and then taking that $20,000 and saying now you have $20,000 you have to repay over six years at 9%, and what you'll find if you do the math is, hell yeah, you'll pay less per month, but you're going to pay, you know, on that particular amateurization, you're going to end up spending about six thousand dollars more total out of pocket uh, over a longer period of time to get the same result, which is out of debt. There's, there's that in alone is a mathematical loss, and when someone is fighting debt, and because of debt, they're not investing. Then the last thing I want is a situation where they lose mathematically. I'm going to tell you the one place that I'm okay with this. If the alternative is I'm going to go bankrupt because I can't pay my bills. If we've done everything we can from a budgeting standpoint and a planning standpoint, etc., and the money to pay the bill isn't there, and I'm going to go into default over it, and a consolidation will allow me to make good on the payment. And not only that, the payment will go down enough that I can actually afford now to make more than the minimum payment, and the consolidation company isn't screwing me, and most of the time they are. You have to make sure there's no penalty for early payoff. And now we can take a bill that was a $1,000 bill that we couldn't pay. We could pay a $600 bill. But the new bill is $400, so we're going to pay $600 on it. We're going to have the discipline to actually do that. And we're not going to go into more debt while we're doing this. And the alternative is, is basically going into uh, receivership. Well, then maybe I'll consider it. And notice I still said maybe. Because I might be selective about which one of those bills I don't pay. And for how long I don't pay it. All right. I might choose to default on one of the loans, depending on what is their recourse. What can they do about it? How long will it take me to pay off the other loan where I can go back to actually servicing that debt and make a deal with them when they put all those late fees and stuff on there where they'll, they'll, they'll negotiate with me as debt settlement, not through a company, but with the actual creditor? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, hospitals generally, they're one of the easier places to do that because they just want money. Right? Uh, so... And sometimes hospitals will give you a very low payment that you can make, even though they keep yelling at you to make the bigger one. So uh, all of that has to be considered. But in general, I just don't like debt consolidation. What I think most people are going to be better off doing is the old-fashioned Dave Ramsey, debt snowball, it seems counterintuitive, but don't look at a single interest rate. List all your bills by the balance. How much do I have to pay to make this bill go away? And then you take the one with the smallest balance. So you got like, you mentioned somebody like a store credit card or something, like 800 bucks on it, but you actually owe $20,000 overall. Every additional penny that can be spent on debt, so you make the minimum payment on everything else. And if you have to go out and sell a, a, a quart of blood once a month, you come up with extra money and you pay that freaking $800 debt off as fast as you can. And whatever the monthly payment you were able to make on that $800 debt is, whatever that number was, you take the number two smallest debt now, and you add that payment to the minimum payment on that debt. You could do it when you had the $800 debt, so now you don't go, woo-hoo, yay, now i got this money to go do something with. No, now it gets applied to the next debt. And you do that until you kill that debt off. Then you take the combined payment that you had there, and you apply it to the next debt. And generally speaking, what happens when people have three or four debts, they pay the biggest one last, but it takes the least amount of time to pay off. Because it snowballs as you go through it. And if you do debt consolidation, that ability goes away. So that's another reason I don't like it. Now, i got to say something here. And I don't tell people what to do. And I'm not telling what you should do. I'm going to tell you my philosophy and why I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Married couples they keep their money separately generally don't do well financially and they don't do well long term in marriage there are exceptions to every rule and in the end you're a grown adults so you can do whatever you want when i hear a husband asking his wife about her debts and he doesn't know and he has to get confirmation that means that we are making decisions about spending money without consulting each other when those decisions affect both of us no matter how much you lie to yourself because you put the money in different buckets. And if my wife has to go to the freaking hospital, don't take this wrong, but I would be insulted if someone thought, just thought, that I would consider that bill her bill. I seriously would feel insulted. And if somehow I'd gotten myself into this position, I think you, as the leader of your home as a man, need to look at the bills that your wife has and realize those are not your wife's bills. Those are your bills. Those are y'all's bills. They belong to both of you. I mean, if one of you went out and, and did something dumb like played the lottery, but somehow through dumb luck won it, did you win it and they don't get nothing? If you lay down and go to sleep next to somebody every night and trust them with your life, because it's really easy to kill a person when they're asleep, you should trust them with your money. And and I think it would be a great idea if y'all sat down and made a combined budget and made a combined plan for debt elimination that takes all of your debts and puts them together and does what I said with all of them. If you have debt, that you list all the debts that the two of you have and you debt all them together. Smallest to largest. I don't care who has it. And what happens is people say, well, listen, especially women will say this, if I want to buy some new makeup or I want to go out and buy a dress, I don't want to ask my husband for permission to do that. Well, there's a very simple solution to this. You make a budget. That budget includes what's called discretionary spending. Money that you can spend on whatever you want that month. You both take your discretionary spending in the form of cash. And when it runs out before the end of the month, you don't have any more. But you do whatever the hell you want with it. And you don't argue with each other about it. You both agree that this is how much both of us have. And I think we need to stop. I mean, personally, this whole thing about who earns more money is irrelevant to the whole situation as well. To me, a marriage is two becoming one, in not every way, but in many ways, but certainly when it comes to money. And the most valuable thing that a person has when it comes to money is their ability to earn income. That's your most powerful asset. It's also a declining asset, because unless you're smart about things like investments and leverage and knowledge since it's based on raw ability, production capacity, it generally declines over time. So the only way it goes up over time is we become smarter, we become more skilled, we become more specialized, or we become wealthy enough to create an income that's a passive income for ourselves, or smart enough to create an income. If we're an author for instance, royalties on a book would be an example, right? And To get the most power, we put that together and we work on it as a team. Because now we have the combined power of those two incomes. And this is the other thing that we have. It is way easier to justify spending money you shouldn't when you only have to convince yourself. When you have to convince a partner as well, then it's not just the partner saying no. No. As you begin to explain why you think you should to your partner, you convince yourself that you shouldn't. And again, we can have that fun money. We each get. And if you have really different tastes and lifestyles, one may have more than the other in their fun money budget. As long as you both agree, I don't care what it is. But if you're going to spend money you don't have... And you're not going to at least put a limit on it. You got Now, I understand that the debt may have been incurred in some part, at least here, due to medical expenses. And in maybe some instances, the debt's on a credit card to a store, and that's not direct medical debt. But because the medical debt hit you, and you had to pay the medical bill, you used the credit card to buy food or clothing or whatever or repair on a car, or whatever it is. I get that. So it's not 100% a spending problem. But I guarantee you, there's a spending problem. You show me a couple with divided finances, and I'll show you two spending problems. The gal in the background, and the guy that made the phone call. I guarantee you, there's a spending problem here. It might not be big, it could be huge. I don't know, but until the two of you put that shit on a paper together... Now, if you don't, you just say, Jack love your opinion, don't really care, this works for us, then you better both do this. You better both have a budget. You better both have discretionary spending. But I'm going to tell you, there is no harm in sitting down this weekend and budgeting your lives with combined expenses and combined revenue and looking at it and then split it in half and then look at it and then look at each other and know that you love each other enough to be married with each other. That you want success for both of you. And decide if you really want to keep it separate because one of you appears to be better off. Because that's generally why that always happens. Well, it's easier for me. You know? Sometimes I think this is some form of, in people's heads, divorce insurance. It doesn't work that way. law doesn't see it that way. You guys, everything you own is community property other than your retirement accounts. And everything you owe is community property. That's just the way it works. That was the contract you entered into with the state when you got married. So you're not circumventing that in any way, shape, or form. Unless everybody agrees to it. In which case, it doesn't matter if everybody agrees how it's going to be. Please consider my words. Please, the two of you, sit down and run these numbers. Put that shit in Excel. Excel never lies, as long as you give it the right information. And look at your plan. And ask yourself, if we do this together, and we do this right, and we take this seriously, and I stop seeing your expenses as something that doesn't apply to me anymore, where are we in three years, five years, and ten years? And if we keep this split up, even if we get the discipline in our lives to do it right on our own, where are we in three years, five years, and ten years? And then I think out of respect and appreciation for each other, and flat-out self-interest, because it'll work better, the decision will become abundantly clear. With that, let's go ahead and take another one.
2: Hey, Jack. Arbitration question for you. What are some right now real-life ways of doing arbitration? Some details. My dad's looking to start a brush mulching business. He plans to charge around 100 bucks to give a quote um, out of the property, half the agreed price before he unloads equipment, and then the other half uh, minus that $100 deposit before he leaves the property. The goal of doing all that is to weed out people that are not going to pay or uh, get them the runaround for paying. Um, I suggested kind of quickly thought of something that uh, you had mentioned on the show before, third party arbitration. But I quickly realized that I didn't have a background with that. I had nothing to offer but just the idea. Um, so how do you actually find an arbitrator? How does the process actually work? Where would you get started? Um I know you've mentioned before a cryptocurrency. I can't remember which one, but a crypto that actually uh, would solve this problem. But convincing someone to do that and do third party arbitration, I feel like is would be more is difficult enough than suggesting that they do it through a cryptocurrency, I think, would um, kind of dissuade them as well. So anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people wouldn't mind. I just want to kind of get your thoughts, get your suggestions and critique. I appreciate it. Bye.
0: So there's a term that gets bantered around in permaculture, often by people that don't really understand what they're saying when they say it, but they hear a word that sounds cool, so I like to repeat it. Uh, it gets politicized, actually, at times, and it should not, because the word itself kind of defines itself perfectly, and that is appropriate technology. So we should use appropriate technology, and I've caught myself in the world of, and I'll come back to the question here in just a second, but just to make this clear, I've caught myself in the world of not using appropriate technology before. I've caught myself of of trying to implement a technology on my three-acre property that's really best suited for somebody in the suburbs, because I want to prove that it works so that the person in the suburbs, which the majority of my audience is in, can use it. And... There's, there, it, that's fine, like, as a trial. But when I started designing stuff like that into my system long term, I realized I was making a huge mistake. You know, why am I worried about putting together a little bitty quail tractor long term and moving it every day when I have so much going on and I, got an, I can build an aviary that's 10 by 50 feet long and throw them in there and not worry about it, and they're going to be happy? Like, since I have that available, my appropriate technology is different than someone that doesn't. And so when we start talking about third-party arbitration, I am a huge fan of avoiding the state's systems. And arbitration is a way that we do that. And it's a very effective way that we do that. All right. But for small payments on like landscaping work and stuff like that, a couple hundred bucks or something. It is not appropriate technology. It's too complicated, it's too involved. And arbitration works best for parties that legitimately want to solve their problems. Someone who has paid offered asked for a service had the service performed and doesn't want to pay the bill, generally is not looking to solve a problem. Either something happened while the service was being performed, now they don't have the money, or they're a dishonest lying prick in the first place and they were never going to pay the bill. Uh, Or you did something wrong that needs to be fixed so that they'll pay you. Those are your three things. A third-party arbitrator generally is good for things like contracts, uh, significant contracts. You and I go into a business deal together. We have a lot of stuff going on, and, and the contract says something, and you disagree with what it means, and I say, we agreed when we did it, and like, I'm like, you're supposed to do this, and you're like, no, I'm not. Or you're like, I want to leave the business, and I'm like, well, here's the provisions to do that. This is what we owe each other to do that, and you don't agree. So then we go to an arbitrator. And the way I write my contracts when I do stuff like this is that it's a, it's a two-tiered arbitration system before it goes to the court system that we've agreed to. And the first arbitration is to be a non-binding arbitration. And this is where an arbitrator will listen to both of us and say, this is what I think y'all should do. And many times that will avoid it going anywhere else because when you hear it come from a third party, and it's not a judgment, it's, okay, look, he doesn't have as much money as he needs to make this right. This is how much money he has. And Jack, I think you should accept it and maybe he'll make some concessions somewhere else, and there could be these, these, or these. Because if you go after him, he still ain't going to have the money because you sue him and you get a binding arbitration or go to the state. He still doesn't have the money. You can get a judgment against him, but you still have to wait for the money. And wouldn't it just be better to, to avoid all the expense, et cetera, and not ruin each other's lives and work this out? Here's what I see you could do. And that third-party arbitrator could be a paid arbitrator from a a standard arbitration service that offers non-binding arbitration, or it could be somebody that you just both say, hey, in this instance, I think Bill would be completely fair, and I think we both trust Bill, and since Bill's word is not binding anyway, let's go to Bill, present our issues, and let Bill tell us what he thinks we should do. And I write my contracts to require that type of arbitration as the first step, and the second step of arbitration to be with a binding arbitrator. This is where you would actually go to someone who can issue a binding arbitration that you've both agreed to. And then if that binding arbitration is issued and one party doesn't comply with it, you can then go use the state's mechanism to force compliance, even though it didn't come out of a court system. Okay? That's... Now, this is not what we're going to do because somebody's pissed off their grass ain't cut right or just as a cheapskate and don't want to pay the bill. Um, this is low dollar amounts. This is rapid turnover. We're not talking about doing uh, you know, $20,000 roofing work or something like that here. Um, my preference, if it's anything that gets above like $1,000, is it's a 50% deposit and the balance due upon completion. That's how most contractors do work with large jobs. I just did, my total bill on my outdoor kitchen was $26,000. We did 50% down and 50% upon completion. And when they were complete, we gave them the check. Most contractors work that way. And if they don't get paid, uh, they either use the regular court system uh, to collect or they use small claims court depending on the size of the contract and what the rules for small claims court are. And that's probably the most expedient and efficient thing to do in a situation like that. With amounts that you're kind of, that I'm getting the impression you're talking about here anyway, I mean, you're more along the lines of you keep a, 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 an accounts receivable, like any good business, and at some point, if your attempt to collect the debt is, un, is unsuccessful, you sell it to a de- debt collection company and you move on with your life and you lost on that customer and you don't ever do business for them again. But it should be really hard for you to get too upside down with a customer at the size work you're talking about doing. It sounds like a lot of this stuff would just be one-day stuff. So you know, what you're looking to do is build up a a, a book of good customers. Most people pay their bills. And most people don't agree to this type of work if they know they can't pay the bill. Uh, and, And the kind of people you're targeting for this type of work generally don't have an income issue or a money issue. You know, you generally not, you know, I don't mean to insult anybody, but you're not generally going down in the hood to sell this type of service. So it's probably that you're more concerned about a problem than the problem actually has the potential to be. You know, if you're going to run a business like this, you're going to service 10 customers a week, you're not going out of business because you have a collection problem with one of them. You're just not. And you've learned, okay, that guy's not to be trusted. And if you're doing that kind of work, and over time you build up a book of business you know you're going to end up over maybe a year or two the majority of the customers that you're serving are repeat business and once you're there you don't this is not a typical problem uh, having run multiple companies and multiple different disciplines of business i've never had a real collections problem in a situation like this the other option, and this is probably a great option, is for him to get a merchant account. And if you have any feelings that this customer might not be, um, you know, uh, the kind of customer that you can trust, you can have pay with credit card upfront. And what that does for them is, if they say, "Well, what if you take off?" Well, you notify your credit card company to stop the charge that type of thing a reversal charge. So they get the protection of, of a credit card type system and there's a pretty low fee on that and that expands, you know, a lot of options for payment as well and you can get little things that you slide a credit card that plugs into your phone and stuff like that. So that that would be kind of the way I'd go there. This is not a third party arbitrator. You know, if, if if I if I do lawn service work for you and you owe me 150 bucks, a third party arbitrator is going to be useless. Because that third-party arbitrator really only works if we both want to solve the problem. All right, so next up, uh, and if we're in that situation, we don't both want to solve the problem. The third-party arbitrator would come into this as if he and a, uh, a buddy were putting this business together themselves as partners. That's kind of where that makes sense. Uh, next up, I have a question on aquaponics for seed starting. Hey, Jack,
1: this is Josh from California. I've got an aquaponics question here for you. In your opinion, what is the best type of aquaponic system for starting seeds that you're planning to transplant to another system or outside in the ground? Really appreciate your answer to this question.
0: Um, keep doing what you do, man. Thanks. Bye. So I believe that in general, the best way to start seeds is in soil. If that's where seeds tend to do best. Uh, that buffers pH. It makes sure that it's easy to provide necessary nutrients for a young plant to become healthy and stocky and ready to go and get out there and kick ass and develop a root system and all that good stuff. And whether it be done in a greenhouse, under lights, whatever, that you're probably your best bet is soil. The media that I have had the best results starting s- plants from seed in, whether they're transplanted or not, uh, that I kind of fell into over the time with aquaponics is expanded shale, specifically small expanded shale. The stuff that would be too small to fill an entire ebb and flow bed with. Um, and, and what I do generally is if I have a 12 inch deep ebb and flow bed, the last say four inches of it are expanded shale and the other you know eight inches are very coarse, big, large, so good flow rate through lava rock. It's cheap and it works a hell of a lot better long-term, and you still get the advantages of being able to plant into the expanded shale. And when I started doing that, I, thought, I wonder how seeds will do in there. In general, they start and grow very well. Um, so with that in mind, if I did want to, for whatever reason, use an aquaponics system for starting seeds, and there might be good reason, like, now I've automated irrigation. I don't have to worry about my young plant dying because I didn't water it, and I'm not going to end up with a skanky green tank that I'm watering from below or whatever with. What I would do, and I've kind of come off of using the uh, the 21 and 14-gallon paint trees in my aquaponic systems, but it would be good for this. No, I would not fill it with expanded shale. I would set that thing up to be an ebb and flow bed with no media in it. It would just look like a an open, like a deep water bed, except there'd be a bell siphon in it and water would fill and fall and fill and fall. And I would get something like two or three inch net cups. And I would fill those with expanded shale. And I would set the height of my bell siphon to come up to about a half inch from the top of that net pot. And so that, I would just, you know, make an extra uh, bed tied into my system. And I would probably do it modulally. If I'm not going to be starting seeds year round, where when I'm done with it, it can go away and be out of the way and not take up space. And as I started seeds, I would just fill my little net cups with expanded shale, put my seeds in the top of that expanded shale, and just set them in there. And so you're going to have that ebb and flow effect. That water's going to come up and go down and come up and go down. But your little net pot is self-contained. There going to be one in there. There could be 20 of them in there at any given time. And that way you're never going to get saturated because that water's ebbing and flowing. You're going to get all the effects of ebb and flow. But when it's time for this plant to go, there's no issues with root disturbances. I'm not going to be pulling it out of a bed and having roots break off. I'm just going to pick up that little net pot and take it wherever I want it to be. If I'm going to put it into a big ebb and flow bed and let it grow out, I could actually do worse than just shoving that net pot down <laughs> into that new system. In, in reality, I'm probably going to put my hand over it, turn it upside down, and then just kind of plant it in. If it's going to go into soil, then it's going to be real easy to kind of put your fingers around that main stem, turn it upside down, and just kind of let those, uh, that expanded shell fall off and have a great bare root plant to go into wherever you want it to go. If you're going to then move into a deep water system, let's say you're starting lettuce seed this way, and we're going to drop them into a raft system. Well, we just cut our holes in our raft for that net pot size, and we come right out of that starting environment, and just as soon as that plant's big enough to go, we just take it out and just drop it in there, and then the, that becomes your grow media, and your roots grow through it down into your raft system. If you do this, what I'm going to advise you to do is if you're going to reuse that uh, that expanded shell, it's going to get kind of, you know, ickied up, so to say. So when you take your plant out, kind of rinse it off and put it in a pile so that you can use it again and again and again over and over. Or if you're going to use it for that rafting system, when it comes out of the rafting system and that plant's done, it's going to really be ickied up from sitting in that water. Give it a good rinse, get, you know, like a, a piece of, like, you know, screen. Uh, in a box, you know, a screen, uh, a screen-bottom box. Dump it in there, hose it off, clean it out, and put it back in wherever your pile is. You're keeping this stuff. If I was going to do seed starting with aquaponics, that's how I would do it. And I think there's, I'm probably going to set a system up to do exactly this next year, if not this fall. But I will probably do it inside a grow tent with a grow light based system. And instead of really being an aquaponics system, what I'll just have is, you know, a little reservoir, a bucket or something like that. uh, That's, you know, maybe a garbage can or a Rubbermaid tub or something like that. uh, That you just dump a fertilizer like Garrett juice into. So it will really be like a hydroponics system. I think there is a case that you can make. To do this, tied into an existing larger system, when I look at my systems, and the reason that I want to start plants is generally because it is uh, too cold outside, even the stuff that's in my greenhouse, I think I'll have better results by starting my plants in my what David and I have called our produce pot tents. Uh, and... and that's probably how I'm going to do my stuff going forward, and I need to think about how exactly I want to do that. But So I think there's, because again, what happens is you don't get skanky water watering from the bottom like you do sometimes watering and trace the bottom. You get that constant flow up and down, up and down. You get all the advantages of ebb and flow, but you get that self-contained little net pot that you can reuse over and over and over again. So that's how I'd recommend doing that. Let's. But i got to say, I haven't done it yet. So I can't guarantee you your results. Got one more question here. This one on working remotely. Hey, Jack. Daniel here from
4: just north of Houston. My question has to do with working remotely compared to a regular job. The details are I was curious about whether you think it's more valuable to get a remote job that you may not like as much or is just maybe not fit as much as what you want to do long term but is remote, so you can work from anywhere and have more flexibility in your schedule. Do you think it would be better to stay with something that maybe pays a little more or is more fitting towards you um, and stick with that? But you do have to go to work every day as it were. Anyway, I would
2: appreciate your thoughts. Thank you.
0: One of the many pieces of advice that I've garnered over the years through research, study, experience, reading books, et cetera, came from Robert Kiyosaki in the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I do not I am not a cult follower of Kiyosaki. I know Rich Dad Poor Dad is not a true story. Um, it is an analog designed to help teach some lessons. But I am I'm pretty fond of the lessons in it. And one of the things that the rich dad says in that story is, "Don't take a job for what you can earn. Take a job for what you can learn." I don't think he quite put it that way with a rhyme. It probably would mark it better that way. But uh, but that makes I think, take a job for what you can learn from what you can what it can teach you. And uh, I I very much agree with that. And I've also been known to say on the show that if you don't have a clear career progression, like you're not going to become a lot better paid in time by sticking with where you're at, when you have learned everything a job can teach you, and I know you can never really learn everything, but when you really have learned the majority of what you're ever going to be able to learn for that job and your career progression stops, it's time to look elsewhere. And I think that is your primary decision-making when it comes to taking a J-O-B. Uh, so if if you're in that, we like, I can work remote with this, but I'm not going to learn diddly dick. And this job over here is going to really enhance my long-term uh viability. It's going to really make... you know. I'm going to learn so much from doing this that it's going to improve my life long term whether I go in business for myself or continue my career progression. Then I'm going to take that other job. If they're fairly close to equal in, in regard to what they can teach you, in other words, both of them can teach you a lot and neither one or neither one of them is going to teach you that much. You just need money for now. I'm going to come down to the side of remote work. Um, in my... Again, putting TSP aside, in my time of being employed, I probably spent 50% of my employment years working remote. And it's so much better. It's so much better. It is as much better as it is um, to work – sorry, remote work versus going to an office – is as much better as it is to be in first class on an airplane versus coach. And first class versus the center row of row 32 in the back of the plane where the seat doesn't recline. That's how much better it is. So even if you think, I don't like this job as much, but let's say you just like it a little bit less, the remote capacity will make you like it better. It does create flexibility, and if you want to eventually be an entrepreneur, it does provide you some freedom and latitude to do your own thing on some part of the day that is very, very valuable. Here's some things you got to think about, though. One thing I always made sure of when I worked remotely, I wanted a space. Not a corner in the master bedroom that I share with my wife. If you're single, you know, the corner of the bedroom might work just fine. But if you have kids, you have family, you have a wife, you have people that are going to be around, you need a place that is held sacred. And and this was my rule, and it took a while to get through to my wife, but this was my rule with my wife. If I am in my office and my door is closed, I am at work, if you would pick the phone up and call me while I was in a cubicle with my boss sitting in the next cubicle because of an issue, you can walk into my office and ask me it. If you would not do that, then wait till I come out because I'm taking a lunch break or, or what have you. Do not come into my office and disturb me when I'm working. And I'll tell you what, I work for myself now with TSP. We still have that same rule. Because it's the only way to create a professional working environment. Now, if she wants to come see me about something that pertains to the business, I'm trying to book somebody for Wednesday, and if we don't get this done, you're not going to have a guest. Okay, now that's business-related. Now, please do me the courtesy like you would if you were a co-worker and say, Do you have a second? And I'll say, Yes, or I'll say, Not really. Is it really important? Yeah, we got to do this. Or, No, I need to see you whenever you have a minute. Okay, fine. Otherwise, if you wouldn't call me at a place of business, do not interrupt me. So if your spouse is home or is home during part of the time you're working, you have to have that understanding. You have to have a sacred space with a door. That door has to close. That door has to be seen as, he's not here. He's working. Next, you have got to do more work than you would get done if you were in the office. You owe it to your employer. They have given you a position where you have so much more time available to work and so much less distraction because you're not going to act like a bunch of damn ducks. I miss my ducks, but, you know, when my ducks were here, they'd be out quack, 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 quacking each other, right? okay. Most offices, half of what goes on is like ducks quacking at each other. People get to work. Maybe they check their email and their Facebook, and then where do they go? The water cooler or whatever stands in for the water cooler, and they start talking to each other about crap that have nothing to do with what your employer wants. Not just commute time. The fact that that is gone means you can be more productive. If you are more productive than you would be in an office while you're working remotely, nobody will ever say dick to you about it. They'll never say, we don't think this is working, or we don't believe you're working when you're supposed to be. Also, what does the work involve? There are remote jobs where basically they have, they monitor your keystrokes. In some ways, it's worse than working in an office. People see you in the office, okay, he must be working. You're at home, they're someplace. So make sure it's not, I, I won't work under those conditions. I mean, I guess I would if I was going to starve otherwise, if I needed a job and that was all I could find. But in general, if you don't trust me, don't hire me. Here's the other thing. Maybe you have to be a little more supervised to work remotely the first time. Once a person works remotely, now they might not be able to negotiate further with their current employer because current employers are the hardest people to negotiate with. The most negotiating power you ever have is the day before somebody hires you when they want to hire you. Remember that. doesn't matter remote, doesn't matter paycheck, no matter what it is. Whatever you're negotiating, the day before they hire you, you have the most leverage. But when you can go to another employer and say, hey, I'm looking to move on, I want to increase my value, I want to learn a new thing, I really like the opportunity, whatever reason you're making for your transition, and you talk about working remotely, and they're like, well, we're not sure. Well, I've been working remotely for two years, and my current employer is quite happy with the work that I'm doing for them. And that makes their objection or concerns very difficult for them. Now, if you want to build a business... And things like, well, I am going to be building a blog or something. You better not be doing it on time that they're being charged for. And if you are, you better be smart about it. In other words, if you have a second computer and you are writing a blog post because you are taking a break, and during the time you are taking a break, you are going to write your blog post, and that's legitimate, and you are getting all your objectives done and all your work done, et cetera, like that. And you have a WordPress blog, and you think that one's done and ready to be published, and you are supposed to work till five, you better set that bitch so that when it publishes at six o'clock or it's 6 o'clock in the morning before you start the next day. So that if anybody ever goes and audits you, there's nothing out there they can say, hey, this, look at this, this guy's building a business about bees during like work hours. And then all of a sudden, the fact that you're the best performing doesn't matter anymore. And you need to keep that professional um, ethic for yourself anyway. And my thing with working remotely was I would set every single day. And I think this is part of what made me better remote than when I was in an office. In an office, I'm going to be here anyway. I'll just do whatever the hell I have to do. right? When I was working remotely, I would say, these are the things that I feel absolutely have to be done today. These are the additional things. If I get this shit done, they're going to be happy about it. And these are the nice-to-haves. And I'd make that priority list and I'd pound that list out. And if I got done with that at 2 o'clock, I didn't tell them. And I might be sitting there logged in and I'll answer the phone if you call me and I'll check my email a few times to see if anything else happens. You're not going to send me an email not get an answer or whatever. But if I'm sitting there watching a friggin' video on YouTube, they don't need to know that. I, I, I'll be honest. I, when I my, One of my sales jobs, when I worked for Garrett Combs, which is the company, the guy that I mentioned earlier, Forrest worked for, we had a, a weekly meeting that we called the bloodletting meeting. It was a terrible waste of our time. And if I wasn't on the road when that meeting occurred, it was like two hours wasted every week so that my boss could get his power trip on. I would be doing something like I'd have a headset on and I have my phone attached to my waist. That's back in the day when we used real phones instead of cell phones for stuff like that. And I'd be cleaning a fish tank or something while we were doing that meeting. Now, I'm paying attention. I wasn't going to be like the kid in school that gets called on when he's falling asleep or whatever. I could have, they don't need to know. I just mute button. Well, Jack, what do you think about this? You know, shake your hands off, hit unmute. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We should consider, you know, using this strategy. Going, whatever they don't need to know. You know, I guess video conferencing can ruin that. But uh, so, but you got to have discipline to make that work. And you hear, like so you're saying, this is a mixed message, Jack. You're not cleaning fish tanks and watching YouTube videos and shit like that. Yeah, but I'm also talking about I have objectives for myself, and I'm my own worst, almost oppressive supervisor. And I'm going to be a bitch to myself. And I'm going to make myself do everything they expect of me and more to where I'm untouchable. And if I happen to be able to do that in 30 hours a week instead of 40, and if working remotely actually gives me those 10 hours back instead of pretending to work like office space, you know, uh, or what have you, then I'm going to take them, but I'm going to be smart about how I do it. And I will never let them down. But when it comes down to, in the end, making a decision on any job, yes, remote is like first class versus coach in most instances for most companies. However, if that job won't teach me diddly shit, and another job that makes me do some things I don't want to do, like go in the traffic every day, is going to be like taking a college course for a year, except I get paid to do it and I'm going to learn a hell of a lot more and get experience, I'm going to take that one. Whatever leads me to where I want to go is what I want to do. But if you can work remotely, work remotely. Um, it should become a goal. I think most people, you should be setting a goal. You know, how can I create an environment for myself where I have enough autonomy that I don't have to go to a place I don't want to be every day? Even if I have to do a job I prefer not to do, at least I get to do it in my extra bedroom. It is. It really is. It's first class on a long flight. We're talking like New York to LA where they serve you a real meal and you get to have a couple Bloody Mary's and you got full sound system and TV and a one of them chairs that goes almost all the way back and going to the office, you're in 32b in the center aisle and the seat doesn't recline and there's a kid uh, crying in the seat across from you and another one picking his nose looking at you over the top. It's that much better. It really is. Okay. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show and an amazing variety that we got. Thanks for all the great questions. Remember, you can call in questions at the think line 866-65-THINK or go to the thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on Contact, and use the speak pipe to send us a message. That brings us to um, our way that you can help support the Survival Podcast. Uh, by doing your online shopping simply through a website called tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. Go to tspaz.com when you're going to shop online. You'll see all of my reviews, all the products I recommend. They're categorized uh, alphabetically there for you so you can see what we recommend. Remember, if I recommend it, I review, I've reviewed it, I use it, and that's why it's there. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I don't ask you to. Uh, the Amazon item of the day that I have for you guys today is uh, by a company called Davidson's. I've recommended a lot of products for them. They're in the kind of the tea and herbal world. And as I mentioned earlier during a question, this is gunpowder green tea. Gunpowder green tea is called that because it looks like little beads of gunpowder, except these would be awful big beads. They take the leaf and they roll it long ways, and then they roll that into a little ball. And uh, it's just a great tea. It's one of the best green teas that I've found. The reason I brought it up today is I was... uh, we started drinking coffee again, and I realized I'm drinking too much coffee again, and I looked, and I was out of uh, True Teas. I had some of my herbal teas, but I was out of True tea. I had just a little bit of Earl Grey. So today I ordered uh, some Gunpowder Green and some Earl Grey, both from Davidson's. So that made me, ah, why don't I run as this item of the day? Um, I give away uh, a really great um, tea recipe with this uh, that would be good for the caller and good for anybody. It's uh, three parts peppermint, three parts lemongrass, two parts orange peel, and two parts green tea. That is an amazing tea. And it will help you kind of wake up a little bit and, and keep you keep you going. Uh, but remember it doesn't matter what you buy as long as you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help support the survival podcast. Uh, no matter what you eventually decide you want to buy. Uh, with that, let me also remind you another way you can help support this show become a member of the MSB or member support brigade. And just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about that. And remember, if you want to be at the 10 year anniversary party for TSP on August the 11th, you're going to be able to reserve your tickets on Saturday for as long as those 100 are available. And it is MSB only. Again, I said, if you're not MSB, Uh, And and, and you want to come to this thing, you're probably not going to be able to. uh, Because I don't think we're not going to completely fill up just through MSB. So keep that in mind. If you're not a member, you could become one just to come to the party if you wanted to. Or, you know, really, I didn't even think of this. You might want to log in if you're sure you're a member or make sure you didn't expire or forget your past. You know, get that taken care of tomorrow because Saturday it's going to be a melee, I think. All right, with that, let's get to our Song of the Day. Song of the Day today is uh, by Johnny Cash because we're in Johnny Cash week. It's called Tennessee. And when I I saw it in uh, John Adams' list, I said, well, I don't remember that song. And I started listening to it and I said, "I I I don't remember that song. And the reason I don't remember it, it wasn't released in the 2014 well you might be like Johnny Cash was passed away by 2014 when you hear the song you go that's not old Johnny Cash that's not super young Johnny Cash but that's like middle of career Johnny Cash's voice there it didn't you know he kind of Like we all do, as you get older, your voice changes and you kind of, you know, he was still awesome, but you could tell this is, this, he's getting up there. This is kind of the last stuff he's going to do. This didn't sound like that at all, and I really liked it. Well, I looked it up, and now it all makes sense why I had not heard it. It was released in 2014 on an album called Out Among the Stars, which is a posthumous studio album containing recordings from lost 1980s sessions with veteran producer Billy Sherrill. And that was discovered by Johnny Cash, his son, John Carter Cash, in June of 2012. And Carter Cash told The Guardian, my father was a true patriot, and Tennessee exhibits this. He really did love the state he lived in. Tennessee meant a lot to my dad, and through his years, he stayed true. lived in Hendersonville, Tennessee from 1967. Until the end of his life And of course this is a guy by the time he was successful He could have lived anywhere he wanted to And where he wanted to live Was right here in Tennessee And I think this song really shows that And you know I'll tell you what I have heroes That I want to be like For various reasons And I don't want to be like Johnny Cash Because he was a really cool dude Well of course we all do But not that's not really why Johnny Cash is one of my heroes I don't want to be like Johnny Cash so I can sing and play guitar because I'm not good at it at all. And I never will be. And I don't really want to be. It's things like this. I'd like to believe that the work I do is important enough that if somebody found something after I was gone that I never released and they put it out there, people would still appreciate it. That means that you've really dedicated your life to creating value for others. And that's a great example for us all to follow. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
4: Mama, I guess you heard I got married in Tennessee. I got a blue-eyed girl who thinks the world of me. We got a cabin in the country. And a creek that rolls nearby, and a dog that won't even bark at a firefly. Our clotheslines hang just outside our back door, and there's a tire that swings in the air ten feet or more. There's a church I can't seem to find on Sunday morn, but I sure found a place that I belong in, and we wear blue jeans and big green beans, spend the summertime naturally high. The county fair. George Jones is supposed to be there. We got forty acres of corn in the ground. Tennessee taters we sell by the pound. We're proud as we can be to live in Tennessee. Mama, you and Dad have gotta come stay with us sometime. I know you love that sweet little gal of mine. You and her could talk about babies, make some homemade apple pie. While me and Dad could take a walk, maybe talk about old times. And we wear blue jeans and big green beans. Spend the summertime naturally high by chopping wood for the next winter's fire. Saving money for the county fair. George Jones is supposed to be there. We got 40 acres of corn in the ground. The Tennessee Taylor. But found proud as we can be that we live in Tennessee. We are proud.